Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode of Skim This, I want to tell you about a new podcast, Be Anti-Racist, hosted by the esteemed Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. On the show, Dr. Kendi discusses policies and practices that have sustained injustice in our society and how we can dismantle racism to build a just and equitable world. An anti-racist future depends on all of our actions, and Be Anti-Racist will help us understand how to build one. Listen to Be Anti-Racist wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Skim This. President Biden and Russian President Putin squared off in their first face-to-face meeting. On the agenda, cyber attacks and nuclear weapons. We'll tell you whether the summit achieved anything more than a photo op. We've also got the context on recent reports about the Trump-era DOJ obtaining the info of journalists and politicians, and what's going on with the latest heat wave out west. Later, the Supreme Court is about to head OOO for the summer. But before they go, they tend to drop some bombshells, including two that just came out today. We'll break down the cases and tell you what to expect in the final days of their term. And finally, Saturday is Juneteenth. We're taking a look at how companies have been thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion differently over the last year. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Mr. President of the Russian Federation, Mr. President of the United States of America, on behalf of the Swiss government, I would like to welcome you to Geneva. On Wednesday, U.S. President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin met up in Switzerland for a historic summit between the two countries. Because even in the age of Zoom, there's a ton of value in meeting IRL. There are some messages that can only be articulated in person. The U.S. and Russia have been holding these high-level summits for decades. Even in the depths of the Cold War, we had presidential meetings to ensure that there were stable relations between the world's largest nuclear powers. Tori Tausig is the research director for the Project on Europe and the Transatlantic Relationship at the Harvard Kennedy School. She told us one of the reasons this meeting is considered so high stakes is because the U.S. and Russia aren't exactly besties right now. Relations between the U.S. and Russia are at a post-Cold War low point. Cooperation is very low and the list of grievances is long and this summit is taking place at a time of unfriendly relations, to say the least. One of the major grievances on the agenda for this summit Russian cyber attacks on critical U.S. infrastructure. After the summit Wednesday, Putin told reporters that Russia wasn't behind recent cyber attacks against the U.S., but that the two countries did agree to task experts with looking deeper into the issue. But Biden said, agree to disagree, telling reporters he made it clear to Putin that there would be consequences for future cyber attacks and gave him a list of targets that were off limits. It's still unclear what would come out of future discussions on cyber attacks, especially when Putin's dodging responsibility. But there was another agenda item where there was some progress. Nuclear weapons. Another significant priority for Biden will be on the issue of arms control. The U.S. and Russia are the world's two largest nuclear powers, and our arms control treaties are in disarray. Earlier in the Biden administration, the U.S. and Russia came to an agreement to extend what is called the New START Treaty. There will look to be further discussions on limiting U.S.-Russian strategic and tactical nuclear weapons. 
This is where President Biden's desire to have stable and predictable relations is the most important. The U.S. and Russia have 90% of the world's nuclear arsenal. It is critical that we have stable relations between our two militaries, and this is where we will look to have the most cooperation come out of the summit. Coming out of their convo on Wednesday, Putin and Biden agreed that both countries will come to the negotiating table to revise that New START treaty and work together on arms control and risk reduction. Another thing the two men could agree on? Returning their respective ambassadors back to their posts. But even though it seems like the two leaders had a lot to talk about, Team Biden had set pretty low expectations for what would actually come out of that meeting. They basically said, hey, no news is good news. A lot of people are pointing out that Biden approached this summit differently than his predecessor, President Trump, did, not doing a joint press conference with Putin and not giving any indication that the U.S. is down to be friends with Russia. So with that in mind, what was in this for Putin? Tausig told us the Russian leader used this meeting to flex on the world stage. President Putin has already won, in a way, just having this summit. You know, for President Putin to be seen standing side by side, President Biden, the U.S. president, the world's most important leader, that does a lot for Putin standing in the world and for Russia's standing in the world. He will also make the case to President Biden that what happens in Russia is Russia's business. So namely the jailing and poisoning of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, where President Biden is likely to make the case that the U.S. is not okay with that. President Putin will say that that's a Russian matter and it's not up for discussion among other world leaders. But again, I think he's really won just by having the summit in the first place. Meanwhile, Biden's been busy dealing with other issues during his first presidential trip abroad. He's met with the G7, the world's seven biggest economies, the U.S.'s NATO allies, and leaders in the European Union. And in those meetings, he's been focused on a different country the U.S. is frenemies with, China. So all signs point to the fact that Russia isn't priority number one for Biden's foreign policy agenda. Still, Tausig told us, this summit and Biden's efforts to create a stabilized relationship with Russia is vital to U.S. interests going forward. It's clear that the Biden administration is heavily focused on China. That being said, I think this administration realizes that Russia is a destabilizing and at times malevolent power that needs to be addressed and addressed alongside U.S. allies. As more updates unfold from this historic summit, you can read about them in our daily newsletter. Sign up at theskim.com. All right, let's get to two headlines from this week and give you the context on why they matter. First up. Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee are launching an investigation to find out how the Trump administration's Justice Department used secret court orders to obtain digital records of journalists and Democratic lawmakers. Here's what's going on. The Trump-era DOJ was looking into alleged leaks of classified information, so they took the pretty unusual step of sending subpoenas to Apple to get information on some House Intelligence Committee members. And it turns out that Apple secretly handed over the data of at least 12 people in connection to that committee. And thanks to a gag order, they weren't allowed to say anything about it until this year. Those people weren't the only targets of these secret subpoenas. 
As part of this leak investigation, the Trump administration also seized the phone records of journalists at major news outlets like The New York Times, CNN, and The Washington Post. Oh, and The New York Times reported this week that Trump's White House counsel, Don McGahn, also had his data subpoenaed, but it's still unclear why the DOJ was looking into him. These secret subpoenas that Trump's DOJ handed out and Apple's cooperation are now coming under scrutiny, as a lot of people say this all seems pretty sketchy. Cue the current White House aggressively distancing itself from this. Attorney General Merrick Garland met with news organizations on Monday, saying the DOJ will no longer seize reporters' records as part of leak investigations. Meanwhile, the DOJ's independent watchdog will also be launching its own investigation. So stay tuned. Okay, here's our next and final headline. A dangerous heat wave is set to scorch massive parts of the country this week. Here's the context. 40 million people in the U.S. are on alert for a long and potentially deadly heat wave. Heat waves are common in the summer, but they keep getting hotter and longer because of climate change. This week, temperatures are breaking records all over the West, and this latest spike has a lot of people concerned about power outages. Grid operators in California and in Texas, which already suffered a deadly power failure earlier this year after a winter storm, are telling residents limit your power usage now. These rising temps also come as a lot of the Southwest is already in one of the worst droughts in modern history. And when things get even hotter, things get even drier. That increases the risk of wildfires. And considering there are already fires burning in Arizona, California, and Yellowstone National Park, the West is on high alert for a very bad fire season. The Supreme Court justices are getting ready to take their PTO days. The Supremes usually wrap up their term around the end of June, but before they head out the door for the summer, they tend to come out with some pretty major decisions. And they didn't disappoint. This week, we got two. Earlier in the week, we sat down with legal analyst, adjunct professor at Columbia Law School, and friend of the skim, Caroline Polisi, to find out what we're expecting to hear from the court. Caroline, great to have you with us. I'll start by asking, June is peak season for SCOTUS decisions, and I'm curious why they wait till the very end of their term to like drop the major decisions. There are different schools of thought on that. I think a lot of times summer, people aren't paying as close attention to the news sometimes, and so that's often a, a good time to come out with very depending on which side of the aisle you're sitting on, very fraught decisions. But I don't think there's anything nefarious about it. I think it's just the the fact that the calendar is what it is. And these judges and justices like to take their time and really come out with the best decision possible. I really don't think that they are timing it politically. As we watch these end-of-term decisions come in, what are legal analysts like yourself looking for this year in particular? What are we hoping to learn about the court as a whole? Obviously, we now have a conservative supermajority on the court, which we haven't really seen in in a very, very long time. And now people are wondering whether specifically with respect to deeply conservative issues, whether the court is going to be bold enough to take on these really controversial issues like gun rights, like abortion cases. 
all of a sudden it's wide open now and it's anybody's game in terms of what we think the court might do. There are some young justices on there. We don't really know their jurisprudence very well. So more than any other court, there are a lot of question marks here. So there are three big rulings that we have our eye on here at the skim. Let's start with this latest challenge to Obamacare. What's at stake here? The case is is Texas versus California. And I think it's gotten so much attention because theoretically, the future of the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, hangs in the balance. Ten years ago, the Affordable Care Act became law, which is what we now know as, as Obamacare, one provision of which we call the individual mandate, which requires almost all Americans to purchase some form of federally approved health insurance or pay a fine. In 2017, Trump and some of you know his Republican supporters really promised to appeal Obamacare. They couldn't do it at the legislative level. What they did do was they reduced that penalty of noncompliance down to zero. So effectively eviscerating the clause altogether, the individual mandate, if you didn't comply with it, you no longer had to pay a tax. And so in 2018, state governments decided, well, hey, If the individual mandate penalty is zero, really that logic with respect to qualifying it as a tax no longer comes into play. Therefore, it should be unconstitutional. And moreover, not only is the individual mandate unconstitutional, but because the individual mandate is such an essential part of the ACA that Obamacare simply couldn't function without this essential element, the entirety of the act needs to be struck down as unconstitutional. And the question is whether if the court finds that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, whether that means they have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and get rid of the entire Affordable Care Act. I personally think that after oral argument, it's become more and more clear that some form of Obamacare is going to remain intact. And it turns out Polisi's prediction came true. On Thursday morning, the Supreme said the ACA will survive another day. And by the way, this is the third time the Supreme Court has preserved Obamacare. Polisi also told us to expect a major decision in an Arizona case about voting rights. So the Arizona case is specifically about two laws that limit how and when its citizens can vote. And it it essentially asks the question of whether these laws disproportionately hurt minority voters. And the restrictions make it a felony for anybody other than a family member or I think it's a caregiver or a postal worker to collect and deliver ballots. And and there are some other restrictions as well on, on where you can cast your ballot. And so the Democratic National Committee is challenging this practice specifically in Arizona, and they're arguing that these restrictions violate the Federal Voting Rights Act, which prohibits an abridgment of the right to vote on account of race. Federal voting rights protections have always come up against states' prerogatives with respect to how it goes about implementing its election policies. And so it's a broader illustration of that back and forth between the federal system versus states' prerogatives. The case is so important, not only in this specific instance, but because the rest of the country is watching and waiting and politicians in states around the country are proposing similar restrictions in their own states. I read, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, that if the court says these provisions in Arizona are constitutional, 
This creates a legal cover for state politicians to implement these election integrity bills. And we actually just talked about this on our show last week. But is that the right interpretation? Absolutely. It absolutely does, which is, again, why it's so much bigger than just these two Arizona laws. Again, the Supreme Court is taking on the the mantle and Typically, in these types of cases, they will set forth a standard. So it will go beyond the bounds of a narrow ruling with respect to whether or not these laws can stand. And they will say something like, you know, and this is the standard moving forward where you can draw the line with respect to limitations on in-person voting, limitations on mail-in voting, things like that. They'll set a broader standard that then these state politicians can go back and craft their own restrictions based on that standard. Finally, the third case we have our eye on is Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. It's Pride Month, and a lot of people probably have their eye on this case as well. Can you walk me through the dynamics at play here? It's a really fraught case. So the case was bought by three foster mothers against the city of Philadelphia. They sued the city of Philadelphia for shutting down all referrals of children to families that have been certified by Catholic Social Services. The city has a backlog of children who need foster care, but Philadelphia said they could no longer contract with this Catholic agency because they actually wouldn't allow same-sex couples or unmarried heterosexual couples to apply for approval through their agency to be foster parents. The city of Philadelphia said, we are no longer going to contract with you because you don't conform with our anti-discrimination policies. When the Supreme Court granted review, they decided to take up a few issues, one of which was whether the city's treatment of the agency and mothers violated the free exercise of religion clause. And again, not that this case in and of itself is not important, but because it's the Supreme Court taking the case and setting perhaps a standard for the rest of the country, the question is whether Philadelphia, for example, can treat Catholic social services or any other religious organization just as a contractor that has to comply with its anti-discrimination policies like any other contractor would, or whether or not there can be an exception on religious grounds. The slippery slope argument would be, if you are going to say that the Catholic social services agency gets a religious exemption here, where else does that go? What else can organizations that contract with governments refuse to do? I think people are afraid that if the religious organization is going to be allowed to get an opt-out of the anti-discrimination policies here, well, what further can they limit going forward? On Thursday, SCOTUS unanimously ruled against the city of Philadelphia, saying it can't bar the Catholic agency from screening foster parents. It was a narrow ruling, though, and analysts are saying this decision is pretty specific to Philadelphia, and it doesn't look like a huge setback for LGBTQ plus rights. So those are some of the cases from this year. But let's get out our crystal ball for a second. You mentioned at the top of this interview that the court has agreed to take on some really controversial issues in this country next year, including abortion and gun rights cases. Are you expecting this year to be kind of like the calm before the storm? Or is this teeing us up for what is going to be a very contentious season next year? 
I think it's going to be very contentious. I think next term is going to be all about reproductive rights. President Trump explicitly ran on a platform promising to overturn Roe v. Wade. He made no secret of it. He appointed justices with legal ideologies that were hostile to Roe. And so just the announcement that they are going to hear this major abortion restriction case next term is a real indication that the composition of the court has changed. They are, if not overturning the central holdings of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, they are seriously considering a major tinkering of that standard. And so I think it's a barometer to see where the court is heading. So it's going to be a big, big term next year. Absolutely. So we'll be calling you for sure next year. Caroline, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Saturday is Juneteenth, a day to commemorate June 19, 1865. That's when enslaved Black Americans in Galveston, Texas, learned they were free under the Order of the Emancipation Proclamation more than two years after the order was given. Although some enslaved Black Americans were not legally free until the end of 1865, Juneteenth is widely celebrated as the end of American slavery. And the movement to recognize it as a holiday has gained a lot of traction in the last few years. This week, both the Senate and the House passed a bill that will make Juneteenth a federal holiday. And President Biden signed that bill into law just as we were publishing this show. So that's what the government is doing. But corporations are paying a lot more attention to this holiday, too. We're going to hand it off to producer Bridget Armstrong to tell us more. Depending on your identity and where you're from, Juneteenth might be a cherished tradition or something you just learned about recently. Almost all of the states recognize Juneteenth in some form as a day of observance. And your job might already give you the day off. Last year, an increasing number of companies, including the SKIM, declared Juneteenth a holiday as a part of their larger diversity and inclusion efforts after the protests for racial justice and equality. There was a sense following the murder of George Floyd and the conversations that it sparked, that a lot of leaders were saying, I thought we were doing okay. (laughs) What's going on? Evelyn Carter is the managing director at Paradigm, a strategy firm that helps companies become more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Over the last year, she's seen a lot of companies add Juneteenth to their holiday calendars. The function of recognizing Juneteenth as a company holiday is to signal to all employees that Black history is inextricably linked to broader U.S. history. I think what it also does is it opens up a conversation. And that is a conversation that if we are going to be fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion, we have to really meaningfully integrate Black history and Black experiences into mainstream conversations across the United States. Of course, just adding a holiday or even spending that day thinking about racism won't actually dismantle racism. But like a lot of people who do this work, Carter's been really busy over the last year, sifting through requests from companies looking to start or expand their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. There has been an increase to the scale that I I, I don't even know if I know how to put into words what it has been like. In March 2020, As the pandemic hit in the United States, 
I was seeing companies start to scrap DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion from their budgets and reduce spending. And then George Floyd was murdered. And suddenly it was like everybody found that magical money again. And so now we are facing a number of clients who are coming to us asking for workshops, asking for strategy, asking for advising. They are generally more open to hearing like, well, you thought you were doing all right, but let me tell you about how these policies and these practices may be subtly or overtly reinforcing inequity. And it's not just an increased interest or more receptive attitude. Carter said the language these companies are using is changing too. She's specifically seeing them ask for anti-racism workshops, something she didn't hear before 2020. And in response, she started pushing clients to think beyond the racial buzzwords and terms they might have learned over the last year. I think unconscious bias is a really important topic to discuss. However, unconscious bias did not kill Breonna Taylor. And so it's the cycle of how unconscious bias informs racism and how racism informs unconscious bias. And that conversation has been something that I have really emphasized over the past year to help people understand what is the link between all of these concepts that you might hear in diversity, equity, inclusion workshops, and what do we do as we're trying to combat all these different forms of racial bias and the different ways that they manifest. As employees and managers try to reckon with racial bias in their ranks, one of the most important lessons Carter's emphasizing is how to be an active ally. You cannot simply say, I am an ally and get a like gold star for that. Allyship is about an ongoing commitment to learning and taking courageous action to create a more equitable and inclusive workplace and world. And so you cannot simply be an ally by saying, I have read a book. Like, that's not enough. What have you done with that knowledge? I often remind folks that in meetings, being interrupted or having your idea that was wonderful attributed to someone else happens all the time in workplaces. What we know is that women of color, for example, are far more likely to have their ideas misattributed to someone else, white women, men of color, and white men. So what that means is that if you are letting those misattributions of ideas fly, then you are not being an ally to your women of color colleagues who really need to make sure they're getting credit for their ideas. That's a simple way to redirect in that everyday scenario that is going to help make sure that that person gets their voice heard. And that's where that education point becomes helpful, because as you learn more about folks' experiences, then you'll start to be attuned to some of those ways in which you can stand up and speak up. Carter hears from a lot of employees of color who have mixed feelings about the diversity and inclusion efforts at their workplaces. Last year, when their companies announced all these initiatives, they were hopeful but they were frustrated because the problems they were dealing with had been ignored for so long. And now, a year later, a lot of people are asking, what's taking so long for things to change? Carter says she feels that too, but she doesn't have an easy answer for it. Organizations who made their statements about becoming an anti-racist organization a year ago are still in the very nascent stages of making that commitment a reality because they have to undo centuries worth of systemic racism, of adhering to norms and policies that uplift white supremacy and whiteness as a default. And you can't undo that in a year. That said, I think that for folks who have the appetite 
and the willingness to realize that this is an ongoing journey, those are the ones who are not just going to make that commitment a year ago with that statement, but they're the ones who I believe are going to be around 5, 10, 15 years from now. And I would expect that they are going to look fundamentally different in the representation of their organizations because they have done that consistent work to make change happen. Okay, so Bridget, we're hearing more about these commitments to hiring more people of color as part of these DE&I efforts. But is it actually moving the needle when it comes to hiring? Well, like Carter said, a lot of these organizations are just starting down the road of really examining how to push back against systemic racism. But I had the same question. What do the stats say about employment for Black Americans? So I talked to Janelle Jones. She's the chief economist for the Department of Labor. She told me that while unemployment rates overall have improved from 2020 pandemic highs, they're still disproportionately high for Black workers. The most recent jobs report released showed that white unemployment is down to 5.1%. However, Black unemployment is 9.1%. If the overall unemployment rate was 9.1%, we would be running around like our hair is on fire. We would be screaming from the top of our lungs that we are in a crisis, that workers need help, that this is unsustainable. So why isn't this considered a crisis? The unemployment rate for Black Americans is usually double the white unemployment rate. And that's in times of crisis, that's before the pandemic, that's in times when the economy is doing well. And Jones said that has a lot to do with inequality and the way Black workers are treated. Black workers have always faced kind of a different labor market than everyone else. They're the last folks to be brought into employment. And when we see a downturn, they're usually the first ones to go. I think part of the economic story for Black workers is also very much tied to discrimination. There's been some really good, rigorous research that shows when you account for education levels and industry and occupation and where you live, even if you account for all of that, Black workers still make less than white workers. Some of the things that I hear when I you know, give these really sobering stats is, well, is it because Black workers are concentrated in places where wages are low? Is it because they're in occupations that don't pay that much? Is it because they didn't pick the right major in college? And it turns out none of that is true. It really can be boiled down to discrimination in the labor market. You know, on previous shows, we've talked about how women of all backgrounds have left the labor market in higher rates because of the pandemic. But what about women of color specifically? So Black women left the workforce during the last year at higher rates than any other group. And there are a lot of factors that contribute to that, some of which I know you've talked about on the show. But one is this concept that Janelle Jones told me called occupational segregation, which basically means that more than half of Black women workers are concentrated in a handful of fields that include leisure, healthcare, hospitality, and education. So basically, all the sectors that were most affected by the pandemic. Exactly. So Black women workers being concentrated in those sectors isn't inherently bad. But Jones says because Black women are working in these sectors, they tend to be paid less and have less job security. So the pandemic showed us just how vulnerable Black women workers are. The problem is occupational segregation has relegated Black women into sectors and industries that are underpaid, that don't have protections. I think the way that the economy is structured is that the jobs where Black women are concentrated tend not to be good jobs. And then that makes it an issue because when they are hit with the kind of situation we've seen over the past year, you know, if you're making $7.25 an hour, 
you probably can't go without six months of work. Like you are close at all times to economic devastation. You are one emergency away from not being able to take care of your children or pay your rent or pay your utilities. And I think that's where the problem is. So it's not fundamentally a flaw, it's just that we've regulated Black women into these kinds of jobs. We can make all jobs good jobs. We just have to empower workers. And that's our show for the week. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Bridget Armstrong and me, Alex Carr. This episode was engineered by Andrew Calloway. The Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. <laughs>